I'm a libertarian. What I'm getting is, Did why? you vote for Joe Jorgensen or Trump? Who? <laughs> Joe Jorgensen? That was the perfect answer. Thank you. And welcome, everybody, to the Libertarian Podcast Review. Look, Keith Knight, you can see he's on the, the screen there. You've probably read the title. He is the most prepared podcast video host out there. So what better way have him come on the show with the least prepared? Keith, you've got an hour. You're, you're, you're the, you have the floor. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. How are you doing? Oh Welcome. Oh my gosh. Don't give me that kind of green light. Uh, I'll <laughs> either go blank or you'll, you'll just regret the topic that, that I choose. I love that intro, by the way. Um, it brought me back to that. That was the Tim Pool conversation. Yes. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a great one. I, I Every time I do it and when people come on, it made me know much about my show. Uh, by the way, I'm Tyler Yonke. We've got Keith Knight. I do libertarian podcasts, libertarian adjacent, whatever. I, I kind of review them. I like to have people come on their hosts and we talk about all that stuff. That is every time I play that, the, the guest either smirks or I get a, a nice uh, warm spot in my heart because it, it cracks me up. It's, it's Michael Malice at his best and the pause with the who? <laughs> I don't know. If it, did you vote for Joe Jorgensen? By the way, I, you had a video and we'll get into all your stuff here, but you did a video breaking down her website. Her campaign, which I thought was very insightful. How did you feel about her whole process? Um, the process I thought was uh, horrific. I think the entire campaign should be more or less ashamed. What we have is uh, inherited, or what we have inherited rather, the philosophy of Frederick Bastiat, Lysander Spooner, Milton Friedman, and Hans Hoppe. And they're really excited about watering it down and not offending people. This is actually just a total difference in ideology with, I guess you could call them well-meaning people in, in the LP. It's not like, well, there's so many feds, about half of them are feds. No, it, it actually is just a bunch of people whose goal is to not offend anyone and to appear rather professional within the political realm. That's not at all how uh, someone like me sees the LP. I see it as one of many tools to help people escape mind control and the cult of statism. So when I see someone like Joe Jorgensen, um, I, I guess I'll just tell you the story because I think a lot of people know it by now. Uh, I, I was trying to come up with, you know, her, her Dave Rubin appearance. That was very weak. Right. Um, Joe Rogan said that he voted for her. Somehow that wasn't arranged. I'm not sure what that story is, but it's probably for the best. At some point, bad publicity is worse than no publicity. Yeah. Because it gets people to say, you know what? I've given those people a chance. I've listened to them and they really don't have anything to say. She spoke at the LP convention in Arizona a couple of weeks ago and she came up before Dave Smith. <laughs> oh my God, the cure for insomnia that this woman is it was just unbelievable dave gets up there of course and within you know w one minute the crowd is you know cheering in between each uh, each one of the statements so i asked her two questions i asked her um what was the uh biggest um mistake of the campaign or what was uh where was uh, the biggest room for improvement that you would give advice to people uh in the next election she goes well, I think the logo, there was a lot of issues with that. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> and she had said that uh, the, the logo um, was, she had also uh, mentioned the preparedness of her speeches. She didn't say anything about the content of the speeches. And then I go, all right, here's one that you need to be able to knock out of the park. Right. 
if you are the LP presidential candidate? And I said, what is your elevator pitch to the left and your elevator pitch to the right? Because people aren't going to read Man, Economy, and State, much as I'd like them right. to. But how are you going to grab their attention? She goes, well, what I say to the right is if you look at government spending under Donald Trump, and I go, you've lost me already. Right. I go, that is not what gets people's uh, uh, hearts into this thing. I, I mean, they so many people loved Trump before and after he spent us into yes. oblivion. And that's, that's the Ben Carson move, to memorize the numbers exactly as they are and threaten about how big they are. You're comparing infinities when you talk about trillions, so you're not really moving the needle. The worst part of the Jorgensen campaign. Here it is. <laughs> we had an article written for her. I, I shouldn't say we. There, there was someone who had an article written for her regarding uh, the war in Yemen. It was going to be published in USA Today. What this person needed was their approval, the, the campaign's approval. 750 words on the war in Yemen. Biggest NAP violation of our time, probably. But biggest one since, I don't know, something like Rwanda. Just something ridiculously evil and totally and totally inexcusable. And they, uh, the, the campaign never gave the okay. The one time they responded was, well, I, I thought that Syria was the biggest uh, humanitarian crisis and not Yemen. And and they never took the opportunity to talk about Yemen, one of the most evil things ever. So um, because they did not use the platform to unapologetically spread the message of voluntary exchange and self-ownership like someone like Walter Williams would, uh, I would uh, consider the campaign a, a total failure. So a few things there. Uh, one, if they were really serious um, about... I can't believe it. getting themselves even in the uh, USA Today, it would be, um, okay, I get you. You wrote this on Yemen. Um, how about we do write it on Syria? And I would put my, pan, my, my name to the Syrian debacle. I'm sure whoever they wrote it, Scott Horton, um, could easily have, have made that shift. So that, that's a little disturbing there. But okay, let's just back up. You, you, you made a few comments here. One is feds being in the LP. <laughs> now, uh, I believe they, they, they did infiltrate in the early 70s, but do you think it's worth their time to still continue to do so now? And, you know, we, we make jokes about this all the time, but um, is it even a viable issue? Well, m my whole thing was uh, that it, it, there's an easy explanation for not being a Fed, which is they just have a different philosophy of what the purpose of the LP is, uh, as opposed to someone like me. Yeah. Um, I I have no clue what. Uh, what, what well, I'm saying it's kind of head. feckless, right? Yeah. I mean, in a sense. So, what's the what's the purpose in a sense? Well, the purpose is to control the opposition and to okay. control not just the narrative but the, the counter narrative. So, you could easily see why something like COINTELPRO would exist, the operation right. by the FBI in what, like the the 60s, to infiltrate dozens of groups, and even in the 90s, there was something loosely referred to as PATCON, Patriot Conspiracy, where the FBI and the ATF infiltrated right-wing extremist groups. Um, uh, the, the biggest case was in uh, Elohim City with a whistleblower uh, from the ATF. Her name was Carol Howe. She had said that there were so many discussions about the Oklahoma City um, 
building, the, the Murrah building yeah. in Oklahoma City, <clears throat> that they were going to blow up that she believed that it was actually an ATF operation. So what they do is they get people into these groups to allegedly get information. But what they do is they end up being the agent provocateurs in these groups. They don't just sit on the sidelines. Uh, uh, an example recently would be the Gretchen Whitmer case. Right. You know, well, well, why would the FBI want to get in there? Well, because you need an enemy when you're going to be a stable regime. So if you just look at the Democrats right now, they have the House, the Senate, the executive, they have Hollywood, they have the media, K through 12 education, they have professors, they have universities, they have uh, most corporate media will brag about diversity and equality. They don't brag about any, you know, right wing uh, values. So who, who, why can't they usher in this great society that they've been telling us is just around the corner since the days of Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson? Well, the reason is the Proud Boys and Joe <laughs> right. Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. And there is just so much race that we underestimated how much white supremacy there was, really. It's, it's our fault. We were wrong about how evil you people are. This is what is allegedly stopping some of the most powerful people and then the fakest fake i think i've ever seen was this patriot front oh, have you seen yeah. this on yes. twitter yeah that is so bad that even if it's real it's you know, a few dozen people who have no institutional power that they have the most powerful people in the world and gavin mcginnis's proud boys are stopping them from giving us uh, economic prosperity Okay, it, it's so ridiculous. So that's why the FBI would do it. That's why any organization would do it to create an enemy that explains why they haven't achieved their goals and why they need more money and more power. Okay, excellent. Then now, people out there, you, you just heard Keith rattle off a bunch of this stuff. This is huge info. He he does this all in his videos. So I do want to come back to the the what is the Patriot Front. I want to talk about them, but let's back up just a little bit and find out about you. So. Keith Knight, I know this, here's where you first came on my radar. <clears throat> Dave Smith, everyone knows Dave Smith, or they, they seemingly do. Um, and you appeared on your show, and it was uh, it was awesome, by the way. It, you know, it was a great conversation. Got to learn a lot about you. I went right to your website or your, your YouTube page, subscribed. And then I went down the rabbit hole that you provide, <laughs> which is uh, a lot of stuff. Um, Michael Schumer, Pasio, uh, Larkin Rose, you, you've introduced me to these people. And then a lot of your clips and stuff. How did you, first of all, how old are you? Let's start with the real simple questions. 25. 20, 25. Okay. And I only and, laugh. Uh, Go ahead. When you say Michael, did you mean Michael Humor? Humor. Because and not Schumer. Schumer. No, right. Michael okay. Humor. Sorry. Michael Schumer would be an interesting one, though. Have you talked to him? No. And, and I've tried. I, okay. I've tried a couple of times. Uh, James Corbett and I, or what happened is I tried. I couldn't get it. So <clears> I told James Corbett to come on my show and review some of his work. Yeah. So James Corbett and I had a discussion about him. Right. Okay. So you're 25. Um, what is, first of all, um, <clears throat> and maybe you can break this down. Um, how do you got into this uh, libertarian liberty sphere? And I know you talked about it on Dave a little bit, but you can go here because I have some good questions. What are you doing? Um, are you in college? Are you uh, out working? For, I mean, you don't have to you know, dox yourself necessarily, but I'm very curious because, um, by the way, your show with, I, I dubbed it as the podcast episode of the year, your show with uh, Ace going over Cur uh, Curtis Jarvin stuff was fantastic. And you guys are both young and I'm very curious as to what you're doing with your life. 
So uh, with my life, I got a couple side jobs. I basically, instead of having one job that I was so obsessed with, I've diversified myself into three. Okay. No, I was kicked out of three colleges, one of which was a community college, okay. uh, just because I wasn't showing up. Okay. And, <clears throat> and uh, the teacher would yell at me, well, whatever. No, I'm, I'm not in college. How I got into this? Well, it, it was so gradual. Um, and I really didn't even plan on it. That's why, like, even when you watch like some of my earlier videos, I'll either have like a headset or no headset at all, yeah. because I thought <clears throat> that I would do like three interviews and then be done with this thing. But it just snowballed out of nowhere. Then I got on Ernie Hancock's show and then Scott called me and offered me a job at the Institute. So that's it. That's the much more recent end of this. How I originally got involved was uh, when I was really young. My dad would take me to see my grandparents in Sedona, Arizona, and we would more or less uh, play cards at the time, you know, because they were old, we weren't able to walk and appreciate the beauty that is Sedona, that now yeah. when my friends <clears throat> and I go, we, we have a blast. Right. But I was very young and unable to appreciate it. And all I would really overhear is that there is this world outside of the school uh, that I go to, and it consists of these really good people called Democrats and these really evil people called Republicans and the Democrats just want to help people. It actually was perfectly summarized by Rachel Maddow the other day. This was literally the view, but she seriously said the Republicans are trying to tear down the country and divide us all. Democrats are simply trying to govern. So <laughs> right. that is right. exactly the way that, that I saw things. I go, how can people be so stupid? These are my neighbors, some of these Republicans. There's the good but, guys. But I want you to tell America. me, what would the Republican uh, version of that be? The Republican version <clears throat> would more or less divide people into the civilized and the barbarians. <laughs> okay. And they would say that all we're trying to do is usher in peace, security, a border wall, law and order, and the Democrats just want to teach your kids about how to have sex at age three. Okay. Oh, God, Probably sorry. Now continue. Like that. Now we have those on the record. The, um, <laughs> the, the reason it's harder is because they don't control the press like right. the left does today. Right. In, you know, 1200, when the church was controlling so much of the world, well, then that narrative would easily come to me. Right. Um, but yeah, that, that's probably what I'd guess. So in that time, they were so excited that Barack Obama was going to be president. What happened was uh, we I was given the choice to go anywhere with my family. We chose Washington, D.C. so we could be there for the announcement of who, if uh, the Democrats are going to pick Hillary, who was terrific, but Barack Obama was managed to be better than Hillary Clinton. Right. And in 2008, he got the nomination, either 07 or 08, I think it might have been 08. And we were there in Washington, D.C., and we celebrated. We went to the White House, held up the paper. Obama claims nomination, and we were very happy. So what more or less uh, pulled me into caring about this stuff is that there was a clear uh, answer. There was the good guys and the bad guys, the Democrats versus the Republicans. The Democrats on the side of the downtrodden simply wanting to help people by passing legislation, all this help could be ushered in, but it was the Republicans who more or less just stood there refusing to sign a bill that would have just inherently helped people. There's no cost. There's no benefits. There's just helping. There's right. just a thing called a solution, and no one has to bear 
any cost. There's no uh, incentives that are distorted as a result of it, whatever. So it was this sort of thinking that got me initially motivated. And then <clears throat> the lie that, well, once he got in, the excuses started happening on day one. It was exactly like when they took the House, the Senate, and the executive this time around. It's like, Trump was the root of all our problems. Okay, well, now he's gone. So this better be impressive. Let's see it. So in 08, uh, immediately they said, well, the country's so racist, the poor guy won't be able to get anything done. You know, um, I won't even be surprised if he doesn't close Gitmo or doesn't do anything just because they're, they're just so evil. They're just trying to undercut him. So in their philosophy, the average white person, privileged. The average male, privileged. Rich people have privilege. President of the United States of America, oppressed. <laughs> right. Yeah, he's, he's actually oppressed yeah, along with, you know, Oprah. <laughs> right. I swear I didn't just copy. <laughs> it I know. Just came, just came to us. Uh, M Michelle Obama, um, you know, Simone Biles, the Olympian. Oh, right. terrible oppression. Um, but the average white person has t tons of privilege and they need to apologize. So when uh, I was told that, okay, so why isn't this Obama guy going to do what we want? Okay, so there's a guy, Glenn Beck. <laughs> and this guy gets all the racists and all the bigots and all the one percenters and he just riles them up. And he, this basically is a hurdle stopping Obama from achieving this thing that he promised us we achieved. Hang, hang on. Do you remember back in this time, though, uh, Rush Limbaugh said he did not want Obama's policies or him eventually to succeed. So that was really used as a, as a, you know, and obviously, and it continue on, but um, that just came to me that uh, Rush Limbaugh was a, I mean, that was a big news thing that he wanted uh, Obama to fail, I think is what it was. And so he was racist. Yeah, yeah, that that was, uh, he, he said he wanted the president to fail. And he goes, well, I want his policies to, uh, and the left said, well, it's like being on an airplane and rooting for the pilot to fail. <laughs> right. Say, well, if the pilot's goal is to crash the plane, right. yes, I want him to fail. <laughs> it's amazing that these right. that these stories stay with us all these years. So, so they had said it was really guys like Glenn Beck stopping this from happening. So I go, oh my god, I have to watch this guy. Uh, I mean, I guess he just starts by talking about how evil blacks are and how women need to be stoned if they're ever caught looking at another right. man who isn't their husband. And I turned it on and it's like one of the most interesting things I'd ever seen history lessons that he gives on a blackboard citing primary sources. I'd never thought to read the books that were always talked about. Granted, I was like 12, 14 <laughs> at the time. So instead of just talking loosely about a book and referencing it, he would actually have the book. He'd pick it up, he'd read it, and then the camera would zoom in. And I go, isn't that interesting? I should probably get a better idea of these concepts by reading the actual materials instead of just rumors about the materials, right. considering Amazon now makes books uh, relatively cheap. This was in those earlier days. And Glenn Beck put forth a principle that there's a lot of costs and a lot of benefits to the uh, Obamacare, Affordable Care Act. But there's there are some benefits, but they come at these costs, and there are these negative downsides. So immediately, I started thinking of both costs and benefits in the economic sense, what later Henry Hazlitt would, well, not later, but later I came across it, Henry yeah. Hazlitt, and he would say, the good, what difference, what differentiates the good economist from the bad is the ability to not just see 
immediate effects on one group, but long-term effects on all groups with regard to a position or policy. So it was Glenn Beck who got me in this sort of thinking. And then Glenn Beck put forth the principle that it's wrong to force someone to buy something if they wish to opt out of it. And this was in reference to the, it's called the individual mandate. The current status of it is like some states have it, some states don't. Tom Woods talked about it on an episode with the guy from Crowd Health, where some states have kept it, but that portion's been repealed. Whatever. The That was the first time I had sort of had like this line in the sand of, oh, here's a real reason that people could be against this thing. Maybe it's not that they're evil. Maybe it's not that they hate the poor. They just want people to have the option of opting out. And then I applied this to Medicare and I said, well, isn't that also a healthcare system that people should have the right to opt out of? And well, what about social security and what about the welfare state and what about public schools? I mean, if you look at the amount of uh, churches that get attendance in Arizona, people go one day a week to church and they are very well funded. There's a lot of them. And if you want, you can go for free. You can talk to people and you can learn a lot. If you uh, don't have a high enough income, imagine if schools, uh, which people attend, you know, five days a week, or at least they're used to, they probably only need to go once a week like church and they'll learn even more if it's privatized. But if, if people had that opportunity uh, to voluntarily fund schools, the way they voluntarily fund churches, it would be totally fine because I have the example of churches not being run by the state and the poor having access to something like this. So why don't the teachers unions just get the money voluntarily? Why don't they have, you know, whatever my equivalent of a GoFundMe was back then, why don't they raise the money like the churches do and give people options? It was this sort of thinking that uh, eventually opened my mind to people like Ron Paul, Frederick Bastiat, Milton Friedman, and Murray Rothbard. So I just took that principle of voluntary association and and uh, extended it uh, consistently. Yeah. Uh, once you find, and by the way, Glenn Beck, I, I'm glad you referenced him because um, he's actually been a, a big influence on me going um, from the right to libertarian. You know, he he's a I, he's an interesting fellow, right? There's times on there and I listen to him, I get frustrated and only frustrated because I feel like it's the teacher, the guy that got me to the anarchist position. Um, and it's like, dude, you you sent me on this path. Now just come, come along with me as much as you can. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, when you probably started listening to Glenn, I actually have been with Glenn for since the 9-11 type of stuff when he first came on the scene. And most of his show at the time was comedy. It's hard to maybe understand when you see Glenn Beck crying a lot, but with Stuber Gear, they used to do a lot of comedy. And as a matter of fact, just today, I came across a CD that I had of him uh, of, of comedy stuff, and um, it's good stuff. And uh, Glenn Beck has been vilified, obviously. Did you, obviously, you moved away from him as well. Um, what is your feelings on him now? I wouldn't say that I moved away. I would just say that I incorporated a number of other aspects uh, into my worldview, just as, I mean, you almost can't help but doing. By reading Karl Marx, you will incorporate new concepts into your worldview. So um, my only thing with Beck is it's incredible, like how close he gets to hitting the nail on the head. Right. He, uh, it was the interview where Michael Malice was at the Blaze studio, yeah. not where he was on Malice's show. 
and they were talking about police uh, brutality or n- not brutality, but just the police overreach uh, during uh, COVID. Like it was just shocking that the cops would enforce such blatantly immoral things. And Glenn Beck said something to the extent of, yeah, important that could delegate these rights to a security force, to a police force, but can't have any rights you that you don't grant to them. And when I heard that, I go, oh, this guy is getting close. It's incredible. But then he goes on Malice's show and says, well, the reason I'm not an anarchist is I really just have a view of uh, human nature and humanity. <laughs> to which Malice goes, I agree. I, I'll totally grant all that, <laughs> right. which is why I oppose uh, state. That's where all the evil people go to and for evil. And it gives them, uh, you know, the right and a- ability to do things they otherwise wouldn't have in a market. And Beck goes... And, and I get that and I hear that. But I mean, think of how difficult it is for, you know, a guy who's been on radio for decades to be like convinced that the state's illegitimate by, you know, a guy like Michael Malice. It, it, like that's just so it's so it, in such opposition to your worldview that it's like, well, this can't be right. Are all these people wrong? And it's just it's like Michael Malice. That's the guy who's <laughs> right, and it's not right. Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly, Roger Ailes. They all missed this. Well, if they didn't miss it, then they're bad people. What it more or less is, it is a trick that snowballs into the, the minds of people and gets them to just not even question. It, it changes their default to where they never even question this thing that, that they don't even see it as a belief. They just see it as the sun rises, the grass is green, people cooperate, a state exists. Those are all just things that uh, inherently are involved in, you know, the human condition. So this sort of unquestioning is difficult when the first guy you see questioning it is, is, you know, this guy who writes Dear Reader, you know, the joke about uh, Kim Jong-il. It's like, can the truth be coming from this guy? But Malice has done such a great job. If you look at who, um, who appeared on the Anarchist Handbook audio uh, right. section he's got all these people he's got dave rubin camille foster he's got tom woods uh you know uh who is uh lauren chen the right. the roaming millennial um he, he's got all these people who you wouldn't think ron coleman he, he's bringing all these people together and saying you know what maybe you don't agree with the philosophy but this guy malice is pretty cool so it's sort of opening them up to the realization that, you know, an anarchist isn't necessarily someone who throws bricks into buildings, just like not every statist is Chairman Mao or Kim Jong-un or Harry Truman. Not every anarchist is some, you know, bomb maker who hates private property. In fact, there's a whole discipline dedicated to private property about uh, anarchism. So uh, I think um, G- Glenn Beck's philosophy is complementary to a lot of this, even though it's difficult for someone like him to appreciate. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. And by the way, I mean, his opposition to Trump uh, and and bringing on libertarians during the 16 election is kind of what pushed me over the edge, uh, at least helped me in that direction. So <clears throat> I appreciate him because um, people, once again, they do hate on him and that's fine. But uh, I do appreciate the open mindedness of being able to talk to Malice Eric July is on there and just different voices, um, Tulsi coming on, you know, Weinstein and all these other uh, great thinkers in a sense that you may have a lot of disagreement with. However, 
um, with you coming into this, uh, when you when you you made this change, so to speak, you know, through the Obama and your family was inculcated by this uh, this thinking. What do they think of you now, or even during this process? You know, it's it, it's so mixed. It it ranges from, or do they um, know? You know, oh yeah, yeah, the, the, <laughs> they know. I I actually remember where I was. It was my Spike Cohen interview uh, that they first came across. A woman who uh, worked with my mom came across the interview, and she sent it to her, and then my mom sent it to my family. And, and then it was out. Um, and they were actually fine with it at, at first. They were more surprised. So, like, the first time they heard about it, it was, Heath's interviewing someone running for vice president right. of America? Because at the time, he was yeah, know, yeah. the candidate. So Third biggest so party. It was more... So. <laughs> I know. Right up, right behind second. They're third. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, at, at first it wasn't big, but uh, it, you still get, much like the, it being difficult for Glenn Beck to imagine, Michael Malice has the answer that the state's <laughs> right. illegitimate. People who have been around for a long time be like, really? He's the guy who, am I going to learn something from this guy? He's dropped out of three schools. Um, he's He's quick to anger. Every now and then, I, I'm not <laughs> sure uh, this guy is going to teach me anything, but unfortunately, you, you, you just have to sort of stick with it and uh, try to uh, have a solid reputation or at, at least ask them things that will get them thinking in the direction that even if they don't agree with me, they at least move away from thinking you're you know totally evil or totally crazy uh, once you sort of take down that pillar they sort of set their guard down and are more uh open-minded to your your position because it's not like we have to convince everyone to read lysander spooner and embrace the philosophy right. it's that you got to get some people very dedicated but more or less you just have to get a large amount of people comfortable and okay with leaning into the ideology i mean very few people are hardcore statist where they will explicitly defend social contract theory and the divine right of politicians and all the politicians wars it like takes a lot for people to become bill crystal the average person sure that's the flag i'll wave i'll say the pledge you know it's not they're not mowing down people in the streets so i'll just recognize them as legitimate that that sort of heart, you know, tugging. It's this little nudging that Cass Sunstein always talks about that you can really pull people into your ideology with. So just getting people to not hate you and not think you're crazy is a major, major uh, move in the right direction. And that's more or less where I am with uh, with so, my family. So maybe you've heard Dave talk about um, where he feels like he's more he's able to convince people that are not close to him easier than the family and friends. And because, um, you know, oh, I know little Keith from, you know, growing up, he's not going to convince me. And maybe there's a, a mindset against that. I, I mean, have you found that? Have any family members been convinced? Um, I've convinced a few, but mostly it's it's mostly friends rather than family, I guess. Yeah, well, uh, I've uh, I've been at this for a few years. So, yes, uh, but a lot of uh, family members and a lot of uh, friends, certainly. So it's taken a while, but it, because I know them and I'm willing to listen, yeah. it, in that case, I was really willing to have in-depth conversations. I begged them to let it be recorded, but at the same time, I go, well, if it's recorded, they're not going to admit they were wrong or yeah. they're not going to be humble if they know what's going live. So that's not, that, that's not the way to go. Um, 
But whereas with other people, I'm just like, I've spent the time on the podcast. Here's a link. Goodbye. And then I have to mute their account because they, they asked me one more question. And people just think that they're your time. It's bizarre beyond belief. But uh, when it comes to friends and family, yeah, I'd say at least a third out of, you know, my, uh, my general uh, association group. They were just really surprised after. I guess it was Trump between the Trump and Obama was such a big letdown for the left and Trump was such a big letdown for the right Yeah, <laughs> that they more or less came to me after I had planted seeds years ago. It's not like I had to call them. Did you just hear Trump said he wants <laughs> to take the guns first and then do process second? It's like when they heard that and this belief was lost, they were then ready to lean into it. Much like Vladimir Putin's explanation of the rise of Christianity in Russia. He goes, well, after the fall of communism, people needed something to believe in, and church was a great place for uh, for, for them to go. So what, if you're there in the background and you've been supportive ideologically or even emotionally, just willing to listen to people, it makes it seem like you're more secure. If I'm willing to listen to, say my grandma, talk about something, um, that I've, I've heard a number of times and I've refuted a number of times. Um, the fact that I'm willing to listen, she goes, Hmm, I was expecting like, I guess she expects me to like throw a tantrum as right. if she's going to say something that I haven't read before or heard before. So when I carefully consider it and I just grab one of her premises and then throw them back at her. So when she says, you know, it's really important. We uh, take care of the poor. I go, absolutely. It's important is why we need to decriminalize all capitalist acts between consenting adults because you don't want to restrict the options of the poorest people in society the aristocracies going back a thousand years have always had tons of options but free markets give the poor more wiggle room than they otherwise would have. uh look at the case of north korea versus south korea where would you rather be poor um so th those kinds of things that is just something that i know would work with her and to hear you know someone like her and my mom say that i've been right where they will just mention it out of nowhere i won't even be like wasn't i right god damn it <laughs> they'll, they'll just be like you know i gotta say you were really right about a lot of this stuff and that's just so shocking i catch the lightning in a bottle and i go thanks i i like don't even know how to respond like i want to ruin this okay thank you let's move on i think um, a lot of it so, has yeah, to do with I, I, i'd say a third I think a lot of that just uh, really has to do with being consistent, right? Over because you you get the right, in the, I mean, a, a dramatic change from when Trump was running, grabbing by the pussy, as an example, you know, and the the left is suddenly all up in arms, and the right's like, ah, no big deal. And I'm like, I remember Clinton having some issues in a White House where you guys were completely opposite. So you know, if if you or me in this case, uh, it, consistent with family and friends, I think that helps bring those kind of. Uh, situations, at least they may actually reference you or they may actually talk to you. But when you have a, a line of consistency, I think it helps. Although it seems so, I, I don't know, my right wing friends, they just seem to not be embracing. You can list out policies of Obama and Trump that are just so in line with each other. Uh, and, you know, one time it's the evil thing and next time it's okay. You know, that's the thing with war, as an example. Um, I did have another question for you. Let's go back to when you first started this whole process, okay? So what made you first want to get into putting out the videos in, in, in the first place? I mentioned You mentioned you had a headset on. I reviewed your show. If people go back, it's episode three. It's when I first started. I reviewed Keith Knight, 
Um, and I got pushback because my wife said you were mean to Keith. A friend said you were mean to Keith. And I'm like, you misunderstood. One, I was uh, I was enthralled with your, your stuff, and I think you're a brilliant person. All I said was maybe the production value was missing. And what I meant by the production, I, I was thoroughly um, impressed that you would just fire up this camera, you'd have someone on, and it was a completely, um, uh, like a, a Michael Humor, as an example, um, comes on, and I always wondered what they thought they were getting into. And then there's the first question. You just referenced the other uh, in part of your commentary there about consenting adults, and it was your um, interview with uh, Jonathan Newman, I think, just recently, um, about you know, you know, not criminalizing consent. And the first question you asked him was, uh, what is an economist? And he's like, what? A, and he was, he thought that was such a profound question. You, you have these ways that you just start the show off with, you read something and then you just pop right in. And, um, so let's start back. Give me a, a breakdown of what, how you got into this and then how you are uh, connecting with these big time thinkers. And if you've got any feedback from them about, um, they're being impressed to being, being on your show. Yeah. And one thing about the production value, um, that that's intentional. If I spend any more time on I, this I hear than I already do, I will drive my head into the, the wall. And um, Although you've done so, some so, big videos like uh, the Red Pill, Ultimate Red Pill. It, it, that's you combining clips. You know, that's got to take some time. And I got an addition to that coming out soon. Oh, good. And people are going to like that. Um, but Is it the Ultimate yeah, Blue the, Pill? The, there's a, yeah, <laughs> yes. Justin Amash, 2024, <laughs> the Ultimate right. Blue Pill. Cato. Um so, uh, yes, I know that I will end up resenting all this and getting too pissed off and getting burned out if I spend too much time or money on it. So production value ain't changing. <laughs> Sorry. Right. It, it's, it's about as good as it's, it's, uh, it's up. It's up though. You've got a good mic, a good camera. I mean, it's, it's, it's quality is coming up. Well, thank you. Um, so yeah. Um, if anyone wants to take my stuff and revamp it and do whatever to it. You know IP is illegitimate. Take it, please. Uh, do uh, do do uh, whatever you want. So you would ask, well, um, what got me into it was I read The Most Dangerous Superstition by Larkin Rose, and there wasn't a audio of each individual chapter. So to get someone to listen to, you know, the hours and hours of the full audio book, I said, well, each of these chapters can be listened to independently. So therefore, what I should do is make a playlist of each individual chapter where I'm just reading. It's between like two minutes and 11 minutes is e each chapter. So I just did that with a headset. And what I did was I sent it to a lot of people who I was speaking to at the time. I used to work in the Coctopus, which I thought was a great opportunity. We'd hand out copies of Frederick Bastiat's The Law, at least the department I was in. I was really, I had thousands of conversations with people and I got paid to do it and it was uh, pr pretty fun. A lot of those Republicans are now ANCAPs and that's that's really cool to uh, have, wow. have pulled those, uh, to, to have pulled those people over. Um, that was probably 2014 to 2016. But um, so, so my first thing was reading each chapter of The Most Dangerous Superstition because I go, this book is so good, that'll be my sort of contribution. Then I thought, well, I want there to be a complimentary interview to this, which really sums it all up. Um, so maybe I'll get Larkin on the show. So I got him on. And then I go, 
well, the one thing missing from the book is private defense and how it would really work in the real world. And that's that's how you can show people this is not just a philosophy. There's uh, private arbitration agencies. There's private security uh, uh, all over the place. So I'm, I'm going to do one final video and it's going to be on that. And I go, well, how about I summarize everything and do one final video? I had done 20 final videos <laughs> and then it just it just snowballed because I I enjoyed it so much getting to talk to your heroes. Yeah. Like, you know, Michael Humer, Jason Brennan, Brian Kaplan, uh, Tom Woods invited me on his show. Um, I uh, then had him on my show and he re-uploaded it onto his and that was just so cool. Uh, Bob Murphy came on twice. Uh, yeah. How are so you getting it these really guys? Just snowballed. I'm sorry. How are you getting these guests? Uh, what I do is I try and uh, get their contact and send them something that they would feel is both uh, beneficial for the audience and beneficial for them. So they go, yeah, people want to hear me talk about you know, the Federal Reserve again or something like that or taxation. But I've done that so many times before. But on top of that, if I say, well, this could be an opportunity to promote your book and you can take clips of our discussion and you can send them to your people. So with a lot of purpose, I had said when I had like no viewers, I go, look, I don't have any subscribers on this channel. And that's what's going to catch your attention when you click on the link. But to attract students to the great work you've done in this book, whatever it is, take, say Jason Brennan's um, When All Else Fails book. That was like one of the earlier ones. Um, I said, well, to attract students, you could have this clip on your website so they could see what a great speaker you are. They can hear something they've never heard before, and that'll make them want to sign up for your class as opposed to anyone else's. And that's what got them to say yes when I had so few viewers. And now that I work uh, at the Institute, now that I have a, a bigger following, I'm able to use numbers instead. Um, so, yeah, th there's no there's no uh, special like sauce or anything. I just really <laughs> try and build a uh, good reputation. I wish I knew a b better way because I've gotten some rejections lately and I've been <gasps> I oh, can't believe they said no, but that's just because I'm so spoiled by all the great uh, people <laughs> right. who have uh, given me their time in the past. Uh, yeah, you, you have been spoiled, and it's been great for, for everyone else. What's your workflow like for bringing on someone to do a book? Uh, you know, you, you mentioned, and by the way, I've, I've watched all tons of your stuff, so a um, little bit of fanboy here in a sense. But when you did like your interview with Tom Woods, um, are you letting him know? Because you, you then said, hey, I'm going to read off like 10 different people. Give me like a two minute synopsis of each. And you just like spitfire these. And I, I assumed Tom had no idea this was coming. And um, and, and it was a great, uh, great thing you did. But what is your workflow like when you're bringing someone on for a book? I mean, because it seems like to me, you know, even you had Chrissy Mayer on the other day and you're reading, you're doing the Jordan Peterson thing, but it appeared to me you had done enough research into her where you knew that this was a book she had read or something. So um, how much time are you preparing for each one of these and kind of what's that workflow like? All the time that's prepared is unorganized and done long before I ever have decided on someone. So if I pick someone like Jonathan Newman, his book takes literally three minutes to read because it's a, a kid's book oh. and each it's big font to uh, half a sentence on each page and then just a, a quick summary in, in the back. 
what it uh, what really gives me a lot of the material is having read a ton of stuff previously and using a pen to write down interesting things in all the books as you come across them. So one, you can read the book, you know, in like two years just by underlining that you could just read the stuff you underlined and get a good summary of the book. And then it reminds you of things and you go, oh, I wonder what Bob Murphy thinks about this. I wonder what Jeff Dice would say about this topic in Walter Block's book and what Walter Block would say about this Hans Hoppe quote that has really stuck uh, stuck with me. So it's very rare that I like have someone like Bob Murphy's coming on. Here's what I'm going to do. It's I've read, you know, both of Paul Krugman's books. And then I go, I'd love to have Bob Murphy on for both of those. Um, and that's, uh, that, that's what I did. So I uh, had said, I read these Krugman books. They're as bad as you can imagine. I'd love to have you on for them. And that's, uh, that, that's what we arranged. So it's really doing a lot of random, dedicated research and then thinking, who, who could I uh, bring on that could really explain this stuff? Or with someone like Chrissy Meyer, it was just me saying, um, I saw you tweeted scam of the century. And was that about COVID by any chance? She goes, yes. I go, perfect. I want to have you on and just give me your three favorite books and three favorite comedians, I'll have a good discussion for us. And so she had listed those books to me. Um, sometimes you can look up, you know, what what uh, the person's really passionate about, and that'll give you a lot of material. But it, in that case, it took me asking her what are her favorites. And I had done a lot of research on Huxley, which we hardly even got into because yeah. we spent so much time <laughs> on the scam and Jordan Peterson. What I try to do, though, is... Uh, rank things in order of importance where we get the important stuff closest to at the beginning because there's a lot of podcasts out there and people will click off. So you want to give people uh, access early to things. I sometimes will not even do an intro because I want to grab people's attention. Uh, one of my biggest complaints of the CNN and Fox News is, is that you could watch them for hours and not learn anything. So with my show, I want it to be like people click and they start learning. And Anyone who isn't on our side can confidently click on something and say, you know what, I might not agree with him, but I'll at least learn about their position or I'll hear something maybe that challenges me and will uh, allow me to grow. So I really try to push that stuff uh, up front. So even if I one time had a guy who I said, uh, uh, I started with the most important question, I go, well, on the off chance, you know, they go like, 30 minutes on the first question worst comes to worst well then he's addressed the most important thing and he's gone in depth and sure enough he went 30 minutes on the first freaking question and and we had agreed on 30 minutes but i just kept going till an hour uh because i was actually kind of pissed off i thought it was rude um because i had told him ahead of time whatever uh him and i are good friends now um but yeah, that is uh, more or less uh, the, the amount of work that uh, the, that goes into it. Now, um, your uh, your what what would you call it? You and Ace went over Curtis Yarvin stuff. I guess it was kind of a not a takedown, but kind of a rebuttal. I guess it would be to him. That could not have just been you randomly. I mean, that was a lot of info that you went over specifically in his book. It was a three hour podcast, I think, uh, episode. Um, that one probably a little bit more uh, coordinated, I imagine. That one, yes. Um, and that's just because Jarvin had said some things that sort of caught me off guard as like he was really wrong 
about either where we as libertarians stand or where even he stands as a monarchist. And eventually they just piled up. Yeah. So I just went to my uh, history section uh, on my computer and I looked up all of the Yarvin videos and I opened the transcripts and controlled F for libertarianism. And I go, this guy is pretty much lying about us. And he's lying about monarchism as well. The main thing that he's doing, and the reason that I say it's something like lying, is because, um, well, one, he has ridiculous standards for the free market that could never be met, yeah. and no standards for monarchy. When the free market fails, well, it doesn't work. When monarchy fails, we just need a different monarch. Right. We just need a different type of government. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Second, he has read... Murray Rothbard and Hans Hoppe yeah. and Ludwig von Mises to read Hans Hoppe. The last four chapters of Democracy, the God that failed, are just so irrefutably anarchist that while he's saying, yeah, monarchy is probably superior to democracy because of the low time preference that the monarch has, as opposed to the high time preference for property extraction that the democratic population has, that's probably an improvement. People take that and run with, with monarchy. Um, so one of Yarvin's basically uh, his biggest thing is he doesn't nail down a concise definition of monarchy. So <clears throat> if you look at one of the rebuttals to my video was look at how he defines monarchy. It's much more like Liechtenstein and it could be voluntary in many situations. Well, his examples of monarchs are Elon Musk, Alexander Hamilton, the Salzburgers, uh, head of the New York Times, the car manufacturers and a restaurant because a restaurant's basically run like a monarchy. So there's nothing to be afraid of with monarch. So he doesn't differentiate at all between the voluntary sector and the coercive sector. He then has such a vague wide definition of monarchy that, yeah, you can always be right. If you define it as Elon Musk, a restaurant owner and a King. So, that, yeah, it's going to be impossible to nail down that jello. It's the equivalent of me saying, I'm a flat earther. I define flat as both a desk, because uh, that's an example of something flat. Another thing that's flat is a spherical tennis ball. Well, in that case, yes, the earth is flat according to my definition of flat, and nothing you say can more or less debunk it because I'm all over the place with my definition. So I thought that was so inexcusable for someone who's so smart and has made so many great contributions. And then his defense of China's COVID response is just terrible. It's just so inexcusable that, um, that I really wanted to do one deep dive and then not really address it again, just cause you've reached the point of diminishing return at three and a half hours. Right. Ace and I planned on like going an hour uh, on that one, but yeah, in that one, if you watch the video format, I copy and pasted the transcript onto the screen so we could read the exact words and know exactly what we're, uh, what we're looking at there. But it's, I just think it's terrible that Yarvin in a time when governments have had this like total unjustified overreach by any freaking metric, it's like hard for people to process Waco or invading Iraq or Yemen. But when it's like arresting parents for going out with their kids during a lockdown in all these places in these first world countries and Yarvin 
makes a priority to bash libertarians and justify big government because, well, the Apollo program worked, whatever the hell worked means. Uh, well, the Manhattan Project worked. That was a big engineering project, and that went well. That is so unjustified and so uncool that he would uh, be taking the time to bash us at a time when go governments are just, it's like explicit fascism with big pharma, big tech, and the state merging and being on the same page with virtually everything. They all agree on whether or not you should obey the law. They have the same concept of the importance of diversity. He decides to bash libertarians in a time like this. Just terrible. And what he does is he goes on Tucker Carlson uh, right. on Fox Nation, not on Fox <clears throat> News. He goes on Malice's show twice. He goes on Thaddeus Russell's shows twice. He came on my show. Thank you very much, Curtis. Yeah. I appreciate Before it. Before you uh, took him on, though. Oh, yeah. Th this was uh, <laughs> December of last uh, uh, two years ago. And <clears throat> um, he goes on those shows and will defend monarchy in the sense of there being a king who has subjects. But then in a totally obscure place that far fewer people see him on, he will define monarchy in a much more justified way that you could actually justify like the HOA had a CEO. And therefore, the CEO is more or less a monarch. So that was just so unacceptable, I thought. And it sucks because I like him. And I go, well, he's not going to do my show again if uh, he, he uh, gets wind of this. And sure enough, someone told me that he had heard about it. And that's why he um, hasn't uh, gotten back to me. But uh, I don't know if that's true, but that's what an actual... Ha have you gotten any other pushback from people on, on that? Like, uh, you know, you were... <clears throat> And, and Curtis Yarvin, when you listen to him, smart guy, um, I do have troubles. Brilliant. Yeah, I do have troubles. And maybe it's my my own intellect. But um, I feel that he talks. Some people um, speak a lot and they're, they're, they're not saying enough. They're, they're, they use long words, big sentences, uh, speak on and on and on. And what they could have really condensed it down into much more easy to digest. And he's not that kind of person. With that said, have you heard, have you got any uh, pushback or, because I don't think it was, you know, you using his own words against him and making logical arguments. So um, any, any problems other than the, the rumor mill? Well, uh, I mean, the, the biggest one that people sort of got behind was I wasn't using the correct definition of monarchy that Yarvin was using at the beginning. Therefore, my, all my other criticisms failed because I had an incorrect uh, starting point. That was the main one. Um, do you refute I think, that? I, I don't think uh, I don't think any others. And my explanation is if you define monarchy 20 different ways, you're one of them is going to yeah. work just as if a flat earther defines flat as both this, a solid plane where there are no bumps and a tennis ball. If you use both of those as examples of flat, even though those contradict each other. Well, then, yeah, the earth is technically flat, according to that definition. So if a monarch is both a restaurant owner and a CEO and uh, the head of the New York Times and Elon Musk and Alexander Hamilton and the head of China, well, then, yes, everyone's a monarch. I'm the monarch of this house. <laughs> You're the monarch of your own body. Everyone's a monarch in some in some situation. So because of his loose, unprecise definition and because he doesn't think to specify monarch when he goes on Tucker Carlson. Yeah. Does he think people have read 
his ebooks when he's talking to Tucker Carlson's huge audience, Michael Malice's huge audience when he's on twice, Thaddeus Russell's ginormous audience at Renegade University when he's on both times. So, yeah, my criticism is he doesn't have a precise definition. So when I criticize the uh, his explanations on his biggest platforms, well, that's that's legitimate. If Which, that's what he's saying, when most people are watching, that's what's justified for me to criticize. So this is where um, I think you get a, a lot of credit, not only because you're bringing up definitions. And if people watch your videos, you bring someone on, the first thing you're doing is setting out definitions, in a sense, to all these you know, big thinkers. And what is an economist, as an example? That's the most recent one. Um, so you, and I think it's, it's great. And it's the only way to really have a, a, a great um, intellectual uh, and curious um, conversation, in a sense, is defining where you're at before you're going down these roads. When you say monarchy on TV, everyone's just thinking King George III. You know, they're they're thinking of these other things. They're not thinking of a different structure that he would have. So, setting out the definitional standards that you do on your shows, I think, is is great. W what made you think to do these kind of um, definitional breakdowns each time you bring someone on? Because I really care about the efficiency of a conversation. I mean, some of my videos will be like five minutes long yeah. and I will put that into a podcast format. Others like the Yarvin one will be three and a half hours long or the red pill one, which is five and a half because there are some things that just don't take too long to say. Um, I have another one on strategy coming out uh, soon. It's like six minutes long. And I go, I got 30 other things I could put in here, but six minutes is enough for, for, for this uh, th this short lesson. So one, it's about respecting people's time. And if I'm talking about capitalism or socialism for a long period of time, and I'm not on the same page with the one person I'm speaking with, let alone all the people listening, well, then you're kind of wasting people's time in not giving them a narrow focus and a good idea of what the conversation is really about. Because people will have totally... Uh, different definitions of the same words. And so often disagreements come down to the meaning of, uh, of words. So if you take capitalism to mean the obsession with property accumulation, well, then I'm totally against it. I have more in common with a Christian monk than I do someone who is totally obsessed because the monk at least talks about ideas, whereas someone who just buys products and never thinks about anything, well, then that person I'm not interested in on we don't share a big philosophy yeah. at all. So if you define it as what's actually consumerism or you define capitalism as by rule of capital, well, then we should use a different expression, maybe free market. Well, even free market, some people have you know, a uh, difference in what they mean by free. They go, well, only a gift economy would actually be a free market because free means no cost as opposed to free meaning not aggressed against by other actors within a certain area. So uh, getting to definitions uh, immediately allows you to see uh, whether or not you're on the same page and how you can at least start talking about the same thing. So uh, pe people will often uh, talk past each other. And when they say socialism, does that mean dictatorship? Well, sometimes. Well, uh, socialism could also just mean uh, Epicurean communes that existed like thousands of years ago which are totally legitimate because they uh, involve people voluntarily allocating resources. But 
so does a corporation. Uh, involves people voluntarily allocating resources to uh, more desired ends. Or when people say profit, profit is a huge one because only if you have an understanding would you really be able to appreciate both the socialist and Marxist and anarcho-capitalist position if you understand profit. When some people hear profit, what they associate it with is large-scale money accumulation by the powerful in society. That's something that they would have. But if you read Ludwig von Mises, all human beings do is they engage in action, and they do so to take their current set, uh, the, their current existence, and improve it, and they engage the, with the scarce resource of their time and the scarce things that they have access to. They want to increase the benefit and decrease the cost. So even before money has entered the situation, Robinson Crusoe, alone on the island, is a profit seeker. He's trying to make the most with the absolute least. Let's take employees. When an employee spends 50 cents on gasoline to get to work, but makes $100 a day at work, he has profited $99.50. When customers buy things, they seek profit. They seek to improve their condition by making very impersonal exchanges with total strangers. There's nothing wrong with this. However, if you have the socialist worldview, you think profit is just something that applies to some people and it's really evil. And that's not it at all. And simply by understanding the definition and its implications, it stops your entire world from going, there's the profit seekers and then the uh, exploited. And th this is the dialectic. And then there's the men versus the women. And then there's the whites versus the blacks. All these fake dichotomies are just erased once you understand definitions and concepts and their implications. And you can actually hate legitimate evil people, the Raytheons of the world right. and the governments. You, then your genuine difference is there's people who achieve their ends voluntarily and people who do so violently. And that's a justified definition. One of the biggest disagreements in history uh, is this, well, was this group the victim in the Franco-Prussian War? Was it France or was it Prussia? Today, is it uh, the Palestinians or the Israelis? And people have to take a side emotionally so they can sort of plant their flag and have their community and have right. people who you know, ha have their back. But another uh, way to differentiate is instead of saying the Jews were killed in the Holocaust, you could say it wasn't the uh, mass genocide. It was more or less inocenticide, I think is the word that was originally used. And it's not that these people were Jewish or Ukrainian or Chinese in the case of uh, Manchuria. It's that these people were innocent. And I'm on the side of people who live their life by negotiating to achieve their ends, as opposed to people who see others as a mere means to an end to where their consent is not something that's valid. So there is an actual definition that you can appreciate and find your identity in rather than this evil classism or sexism or racism that uh, the left and some on the right uh, love uh, so much today. So that's why uh, definitions are important. Okay. So you, you said something there that really sparked some interest in me, actually quite a few things. One of them. So I came... My parents, unlike yours, were the complete opposite. We were growing up right wing. I remember uh, parents, uh, I'm 50, so I remember a lot more than, than you as far as back. I remember them being all worked up over Carter getting elected as an example. So 
from my point of view, that's where I came. Okay, so the Vietnam War was a very interesting thing to me. And once I became libertarian, um, I you know, there's certain little things that you kind of hold on to at the end, and then you finally give them up. Then you know, the foreign intervention was probably that was probably my last uh, vestige of trying to really kind of hold into the past there. But what was so fascinating to me, um, by the way, your your um, buddy there, um, Liberty Weekly. Uh, uh, Patrick McFarland. He just did a thing about the Vietnam documentary uh, and the Vietnam War, which actually, to me, Keith Burns was a help to me. Not so. I'll just back up here. The the Vietnam War was always disturbing because to me it was um, the communists against you know the saviors of the world. And then I watched the the documentary, and I'm already getting kind of into the libertarian sphere. And I there was a one guy in there. He was enlisted. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, he was enlisted. And he um, was one of the early ones. He gets out. He actually um, got, had gone to West Point, grew up with a right-wing family. He hated Jane Fonda. And yet he was throwing his medals over the, the, the thing with uh, John Kerry. And he, it was interesting to me that I'm like, oh, he's against the war. He served in the war. He hates the battle that went on. Um, and his point was, when we came out at the end, it was no different than when we started. So, you know, we're worried about the proliferation of the Viet Cong and the Soviets. And in the end, they won. We lost, you know, 50 th- some thousand people or whatever the number is. And nothing changed. You know, this is inevitable if we hadn't gone to war anyway. I start to see a different perspective of the Vietnam War. And then I find Murray Rothbard and all that. With that, what I'm saying is... Um, you came into this kind of, you talk about picking sides and it's, it's, you know, this side against this side. And that's really how that war was to me rather than it should have been about just the evils of war. And it's not, you know, the, the problem you, I had growing up and reading a lot of things was, you know, the, the left was against the war, but they were, you know, touting the little red book of Mao. So you have this, I'm either for the communists or I'm for not the communists and, and the reality can be somewhere in the middle. I came up on the right. You started on the left. It looks like you kind of went to the Glenn Beck. Are there anything you're still kind of holding or the, the last vestige? And I don't know if that was kind of a right wing that you had or left wing, but what were some of the kind of those uh, last issues that you still held on to or if you are? Um, some of uh, the things that I would still hold on to would be more or less unconditional. So it's like as much as you can sympathize with someone who simply just cares about the downtrodden. They see someone in a terrible position and they say, okay, what can I do to help? Those people really exist. A lot of them work yeah. in uh, rehab centers, uh, human resources departments. So this area of caring, you can totally sympathize with uh, people on the, or uh, if you take people on the right, the concept of uh, community and needing a family, which they later extend to the state, just like the leftist extends caring to the state should care for people, that non sequitur. The right has the same, where they value the importance of community, belonging, identity, and feeling like other people have your back, increases the amount of security, thus increases the amount of satisfaction, pleasure, and confidence you have throughout your entire life. So there's still things that I um, am totally sympathetic with, and that allows me a starting point uh, for which I can start having uh, pr- productive conversations. So I wouldn't say uh, just because the concept of statism is just such a unjustifiable contradiction yeah. that it's not like I'm so, so sympathetic. It's the equivalent of me saying, well, poverty does exist. Therefore, Hispanics should have the right to rule Asians. It's just as ridiculous as Congress should have the right to rule everyone else. Right. 
uh, all the same shortcomings <clears throat> apply. There's the disincentives, uh, and then there's just the moral issue of, of the entire thing. So that's not really where my sympathy lies. It, my sympathy lies with so much of what people believe and realizing that it's not that they're evil, it's that they've been tricked. And there in lies where is a position where you're able to talk with people without driving yourself crazy because it's very few people. I mean, of all the conversations I've had, I, I remember one specifically. I was at Charleston's in Chandler, and I was actually talking to like a totally evil person. And this <laughs> is out of the thousands and thousands of conversations. I mean, this guy had an understanding of anarchy like – like Lou Rockwell, he understood it backwards and forwards. And I go, well, if you have this, you know, standard for me and my company, why not have it for this group called Congress? And he goes, because I like that group, because that's going to allow me to achieve my ends and my desires. I don't care how many people I have to kill. And I go, so if everyone resists, you'd have the right to murder everyone. He goes, yep. And I go, that's good to know. And then I just left him with, all right. So in this sort of, uh, in this sort of situation, you think if you give the state tons of power, you think they're really going to have your back. So even if they totally embrace all the power you want them to, you think they're going to be calling you and say, let's call him Bob. Hey, Bob, what should we do about X, Y, and Z? If you're not useful to the most powerful person in this arena, the person who's going to be attracted to that you know, executive branch, well, you're not going to benefit any more than I will. So shouldn't that just scare you a little that you might right. be sowing the seeds of your own destruction? And that's how that, that's the only way you can deal with those people. So overall, yes, I benefit. Um, I'm able to still benefit from the ideas that I get from all the people that I still disagree with, because someone always has information that you don't. Um, and when you de deal with the very rare person who you just more or less have nothing in common with, usually the reality of statism that it only exists at the expense of other organizations. It does not have this harmonious, mutually beneficial aspect that the free market does. It only exists at the cost of coming at something else. Well, then that at least will disincentivize people or make them think twice, mainly. But that's so rare. And if, if that's really who we were up against, we wouldn't stand a chance. The good thing is that most people are wrong because they're tricked, not uh, not evil. So that's why I'm still able to sympathize with so many people. Well, and I think the sympathy and um, and coming at it. So you have some sympathies, uh, and I I believe actually you're talking about the, the homeless or the 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 downtrodden and care that you know a lot of it. The tax policy and the welfare that's in it doesn't incentivize people to you know put money back into churches, Salvation Army, whatnot, because tax policy just everyone um, it's taken care of by the government. And I think that's an evil thing. Back to your person of speaking to the most evil person you said there in Chandler. Um, I would almost prefer someone come right out and say what the motive is because the people that pretend that that's not what's happening, even though that the reality, as he stated it, is you know everyone disagrees with you, you're going to kill everybody. That's actually uh, I don't not necessarily implicit, but it's actually part of the the mentality of those in they just say it's for a different reason. Uh, and by the way, was it Kevin Castley that you were saying? Dude? <laughs> No, you, you wouldn't know the guy. Okay, Thank just, God you wouldn't. I'm just know kidding. Him. Um, uh, let's go on to a few other things real quick before we uh, take off here. Um, you're you're having a book come out. Is that correct? Maybe. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I certainly hope so. 
And what's well, the concept? I of actually that? shouldn't say that. The, the, the answer is yes, because um, uh, I've had people <clears throat> write things specifically for it. So, yes, absolutely. The only reason that I don't pimp it at all is because the I don't know what the date is. And there's a lot that I'm learning about the editing process that at the time doesn't cross your mind. But the second you come across, you go, oh, of course, that needs to be fixed. I can't believe I almost published a book with all that in there. The problem is, is I had told the people who took the time to write articles that it would be some time ago that the book would be published. What I've sadly done is gone back on my word for the sake of hopefully having something a little better in a couple months. So the reason I don't uh, push it uh, as much as I plan to is because I just don't have a date and I'm, I feel horrible about giving the people who took time uh, and invested into this book a I hate to say it'll be another two weeks and then two weeks later, eh, it'll be another three weeks. That just feels so cheap that I'm really not talking about it until I have an exact date for uh, the release. And what's the concept? Um, the concept is going to be all the reasons that put that took me from a progressive to a conservative to a minarchist to an anarcho-capitalist. Okay. And, and so is it similar to the anarchist handbook in a sense where other people are contributing things or is it you oh, coming? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, if you'd had the book, I could have read a, a part of it on the top and then asked you a quick question. That's how we could have started this show. Uh, so is this going to be through the Libertarian Institute? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What's your involvement the with Cato them? Guy, the, the Cato guy tried to grab me. And especially after seeing David Bose's tweet this oh, morning, it was I'm, glad I, uh, I'm glad I didn't go with him. I, Even though it, there's so many good people there, but God damn that David Bose. He just lives to piss me off. You know what's, um, this is what's great about finding your channel as an example. When I, um, right winger growing up, going through this, you know, very involved in politics. Uh, one of the, per my, my friend at the time in the nineties, this is how old I am. Um, he gave me uh, The Law by Frederick Bastiat. And I read that. It's super simple. And it just stuck with me. I just had a, always had a libertarian bent. But then I'm trying to find libertarian info. And before Dave shone the light on uh, K, uh, on Mises, oh, geez, that was correct. Um, you know, I was looking online and it's like David Bowe's um, book, um, Libertarian Manifesto or something comes up. And I was almost wanted to buy it, but I'm like... It's so yellow. It just seems like it's he's trying too hard to be libertarian. <laughs> and I needed some other books. And then I find your stuff, Larkin Rose and all these things. And it's a vast world of books out there. So what what is your involvement with the Libertarian Institute? I know you write some articles with them. You're obviously doing this book. Is this going to be hopefully your full-time job or kind of what's your what's your mindset for your career? Because um you, you need to be prominent and utilizing your brain somewhere where everyone could benefit. Well, thank you for saying that. I, yeah. I appreciate it. The, the reason I'm not going to make it full time is I just know that it'll drive me crazy and then I'll end up presenting <laughs> it. So I, I mental mean, health. Really I appreciate that, too. Way to go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I just need to kick back with a cigar and friends and BS about right. nonsense you know, watch some Modern Family and Everybody right. Loves Raymond right. and just not think about, uh, you know, the freaking Yemen or Libya, right. for God's sakes. So um, I don't plan on making it uh, full time. But as the Austrian would say, it's not that I won't do it. It's that I won't do it at the current price. So maybe the <laughs> offer is out there. Uh, maybe Cato's maybe offer. There. What if Cato, you know, maybe. comes up with the, the big Cato money? So I, I was afraid to ask for an offer. So I just said no. Um 
as far as other things I plan on doing, uh, I never would have guessed I'd be here like years ago. So yeah. I have no clue. I'm just going to keep trying to produce content that um, takes on the cult of statism. So that that's where I can be totally vague. As far as what I do for the Institute, I try to produce videos, audio, and articles, and clips with other people who work there that uh, try and uh, communicate the concepts to people who don't agree with us. So as nice as it is for people who are already ANCAPs to say, you're making great contributions, it's so much better when I get someone who say, you know, I never considered this, and then I came across your work. Yeah. So <clears throat> I recently did a video on school choice with a guy named Jason Bedrick, and Look, a lot of a lot of people are unhappy about it because we didn't talk about total privatization. But what I did was I had someone who sort of agreed with us and I reached out to his audience and I got a little feedback, not as much as I'd like, but I got feedback from people who had never heard of libertarianism before. I had an Uber driver some time ago who had never heard the word libertarian, but because I was wearing my Libertarian Institute shirt, not this one, but a similar one, uh, she goes, oh, what is that? I, I, I'm not really familiar with it. It just shocked me so much that I go, I need to have elevator pitches ready for people like this because that, that was a little surprising. So uh, what I do uh, there, post videos and uh contribute to the podcast feed but what i really want to do is be able to send people who don't agree with us my link and give them something that would intrigue them or just make something beneficial i recently team i'm in the process of teaming up with a uh, conservative outlet which has twenty thousand uh da daily viewers um which is i mean unbelievable right. compared to I had two viewers, you know, a, a few years ago, but you know, of, of course we're not at uh, the, the Hoover institution yet, but the point is just to reach out to people and say, you guys are great on issues A, B, and C. Here's where I think you're wrong. So with the right, it'll be something like all my Thomas Sowell uh, videos. Cause Thomas Sowell's just one of the most yeah. brilliant people yeah. ever. So I'll show them that and they'll go, Hmm, maybe if this guy's able to appreciate soul, Maybe he has other things that I can learn from. Or uh, for Jimmy Dore, I made a video titled A Libertarian Message to Jimmy Dore, uh, so, something like that. And uh, and that was basically my plea to progressives of, you guys have a great philosophy on these five issues. And what I did was I based it off uh, research done at the Journal of Libertarian Studies by Hans Hoppe like 30 years ago. So I just love the fact that I may bring ideas that have been more or less gathering dust for 30 years. And people who were like 16 years old, I had a guy in Romania get a hold of me and say, this was incredible. You know, my parents were always anti-communist and we always tried to think, how is it that communism could grab people's attention? And your video explained it. And he was referencing the uh, uh, to message Jessica. to Jimmy Dore video. So my goal at the Institute is to provide videos that are more or less low cost. People can watch them as far as time goes. I don't have ads and they don't cost anything monetarily. The big cost is people's time and people's uh, hurtling to their emotional attachment to the ideas of statism. We're already facing those, yeah. th those two major hurdles. So I don't want to, on top of that, add sponsors and then charge people or anything. Uh, it's big enough as it is the, uh, the, the ask we have here. So at the Institute, I try to provide free videos, articles, and audio and essays and quotes 
that uh, will sort of uh, help people uh, exit this uh, statism cult as soon as possible. Well, I think you're doing a great job. And I think it was uh, you were trying to remember who you were with, just uh, Force Mommy. Maybe I saw some of the, caught some of that. And you had made the mention that, you know, look, your, your idea is just you want to produce content for others to go there, you know, absorb it. And uh, and by the way, that's kind of my idea, too. I'm not really, you know, trying to do anything. I have a I have a job. I, I make money doing elsewhere. I'm just trying to find podcasts and people that I could spread to my friends and, you know, to give them something to do. And then, you know, I need to talk. So I, <laughs> it just comes out here. And by the way, you know, you're, you're, you're reading books, which is, by the way, fantastic. I listen to a lot of books on, on I am riding my bike and other things. I can't outline and underline those things. So um, I'm listening to something that I want to do it later. I've got to re-listen to it or re-read it. And so, you know, what you're doing is, is fantastic. Last question. Um, what's in the bins behind you? I saw someone put that question up <laughs> while you're on a show. It didn't get answered. What's in the bins, uh, Keith? When, what show was that? It might have been I, Chrissy I, Meyer. I, and, to... I don't know. Someone on, on some live chat. Maybe it was Forrest Mommy. I just, I happened to be listening. I looked other and someone said, what's in the bins? And I'm like, yeah, what's in the bins? Dude, it's it's paper, uh, old papers and files. It's not like I wish I could say the the limbs of my enemies. It's nothing big. If I look at, oh yeah, the, those are old uh, self help books. And on that side, it's all uh, tax information. Oh it's wow, all we won't receipts. we won't we won't go there. Oh, I, uh, I this is the this is maybe the last one. Uh, no, don't get a green screen. You know, some of the green screens are the flags behind people. It's Thanks too God, much. I just saved myself more money on the production value. Right. No, that looks perfectly fine. It looks organized. I look at that and I say, uh, Keith is, seems like an organized person. Uh, the green screen is fine. Uh, the, the flag behind often gives that that feel that you're doing some sort of hostage <laughs> video. So let's not go there. Um, kicked out or quit college? Three of them. You you, you said both in the time here. What, kicked which out. kicked out? Uh, Grand Canyon University, um, bad grades. Okay. Arizona State University, bad grades. Um, uh, Chandler Gilbert Community College, uh, falling asleep in class because nice. I was a drug addict at the time. Oh, well, um, congratulations on being. So, yeah, that was four and a half years ago. So I've, I've, been, I've been clean since then. But, yeah, kicked out of all three. Um, okay, now you, you speak me a little bit here. So I'm assuming, um, you know, I've known people like this as well, that um, school is probably, you You seem very smart and you're able to obviously, I've watched enough of your videos, have this conversation here. That does not seem to be your problem. So evidently it was the you didn't, you were not interested either in the subject or in putting in the effort. I'm assuming that's correct. Oh, yeah. I mean, once you learn about opportunity cost, so you just see every second you're getting a little closer to death. And in that scarce time, am I going to discuss the Pythagorean theorem again? Am I right. going to read this boring, trivial nonsense right. so I could one day be as smart as the person who's a total idiot teaching the class who belongs to this psycho religion of statism? Well, no, I got tons of other books that I'm dying to read. There's Pat Buchanan's words that I have not read yet, and that devastates me. Uh, there are Thomas Sowell books that I take so long to read because you have to go into like the footnotes of all this stuff. There's still things by Mises and Lou Rockwell. Um, and there's just time that I want to relax and I don't want to read this boring nonsense. Right. So look, I gave you 12 years of my time, Mr. <laughs> Government Schools, and right. you did a terrible job. Look, you take your car uh, to the shop and after 12 weeks, it's worse than it was when you brought it in. 
you're not going to use that company ever. So when it comes to the schooling system, I'm finished. I'm, I'm so done with the high amount of money, with the high amount of time that they take away from you. That's stuff. That's time I could be doing anything else. Um, and God, what they teach is just so boring and ridiculously evil. Um, you know, this one guy at ASU said he was going to kill me. I had, um, uh, we were talking about, and this was a progressive when I had said to not have double standards for the police when it comes to self-defense. Now, the implications of that are not exactly, you know, right. people skipping through meadows, but at least the premise isn't that wild. Um, and of course, you know, he flipped out, but we ended up b becoming friends later. Um, that's just not an environment that uh, get, gets people thinking any more than the Church of Scientology would be open to anti-Scientology thought. Government schools and those the people those institutions have produced, they're not that interested in uh, questioning the concept of what I should start calling government supremacy because they're against one kind of supremacy only, but government supremacy they're totally legitimate uh, and, and they're totally okay with. So, um, yeah, not interested, hate the schooling system, waste of time and money, produces morons, economically illiterate, historically illiterate, no humility, they're not open-minded. So, I mean, I hate those people so much. Um, that's why I liked having Jason Bedrick on uh, a few days ago, just to talk about how like the most simple ask of the teachers' union is, all right, so we pay the taxes. Can we choose which school to send our kid to for hours a day, five days a week? And the answer is no. The no. answer is no. You, you have to pay for it. Absolutely. We'll have Kamala Harris enforce truancy laws. You'll go to jail. The kids will grow up without parents. And it will hurt the parents' job opportunities in the future. Everything's going to be worse. You don't get to choose. You will pay for it, though. Um, and that's why, and, and of course they call the private sector greedy and, and, and <laughs> right. that's their position. Um, so I hate it so much that I try and provide a free educational alternative to which people will say, well, you're biased. Well, so is every one of these yeah. motherfuckers who calls themselves a professor <clears throat> are just as biased as I am. Actually, I think I'm less biased because I explicitly come out and say, here's my position. Yeah. Whereas they'll say, no, nope, no two ways about it. The, uh, the, the new deal brought us out of the depression Asking if it caused the recession of 1937, the double dip recession within the depression, they're not that curious about. Um, even even when you ask them, well, government spending drastically decreased uh, after the Second World War. Wouldn't that have led to a depression instead of economic growth? The simple, most blatant things these people have never thought about because they've spent their whole life swimming with the tide. So any resistance, they flip out. No, I'm done. And I'm even done bitching about it. So I, I hate the university system. <laughs> well, so uh, uh, me, a father of four kids uh, in college and almost out of high school, uh, that's the kind of the range there. Um, I have tried to teach them to be um, skeptical of everything, not cynical necessarily. I don't know if that's helpful, uh, but also that, you know, college is not necessary, right? And let, well, my son's going to be a nurse and I don't think he could just go put catheters in people, you know, view things on YouTube. So that's a little bit different kind of uh, instruction that you might need. So uh, once again, I'd appreciate the the feedback on on the education. And I believe you're completely right. I think you're a poster boy of, of exactly this thing. I just talked to Drew Hancock a few weeks ago, very similar attitude, smart kid, same thing. And I think it's wonderful that you guys are 
taking your lives in your own hands and and doing what you're doing. So once again, thanks. Uh, what's next for you, um, for everybody else? How can they follow you, find you out there, and um, kind of what's the next big thing on the horizon? They can follow me on odyssey.com. Keith and I don't tread on anyone. I'm on YouTube, but I've been treading two strikes for a while, so oh boy. please get me on Odyssey. I'm on the podcatchers, but the two great places to follow me would be minds.com and uh, odyssey.com. Uh, uh, the information to donate to either the Institute is available at libertarianinstitute.org or me personally. If uh, you want me to um, increase my production value, like that's going to happen. Or you just want to chip in and and uh, l- let me know you appreciate it. That stuff, that, when people donate a dollar, it's a freaking dopamine hit. So, hey, appreciate you having me on, Tyler. Yeah, no problem. I really appreciate it, Keith. Once again, Keith Knight, don't tread on anyone. Find him everywhere. Um, once again, follow him and pay him for what he does because he's putting out a great service. Keith, appreciate it. Uh, all the best. And if you ever go back and watch my review of you on, on episode three, Just understand it was all out of love and there was (laughs) nothing meant ill of it. Thanks, everybody. Tyler Yonke, Libertarian Podcast Review. We feature people like Keith Knight. Thanks, everybody. I just started live streaming. Cut me some slack. I'm fucking, I'm pretty high tech for a boomer. Uh, But anyways, I'm a boomer.